1: Open your Bible to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. There's a setting here in which these words take place, in which this passage of Scripture takes place. It's the Last Supper. And typically what happens with you and me as time passes, we tend to forget some of the other things that took place in the midst of the Last Supper. For example, in John chapter 13, Jesus takes off his outer garment And he stoops down and he washes the feet of the apostles. And Peter actually rebukes him and says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus has to put him onto the right path again, as Jesus always is doing in my life, as he's always doing in your life, in the life of every disciple. Jesus is always taking us from what we think needs to happen to what God knows needs to happen. But that takes place, the foot washing takes place in the setting of that Passover Seder, what we call the Last Supper. And in the midst of that as well, if we looked at Luke chapter 22, in fact, we did do that There is a dispute or an argument that takes place about which one of the mere mortals is the greatest among them. I mean, it's the irony of ironies that Jesus is pouring himself out, talking about the Last Supper, talking about this is... The bread symbolizes my body, this is my body broken for you, and this is the wine symbolizes my blood, my blood poured out for you, and it's in the midst of that setting that a debate actually gets underway about which one of them is the greatest, and it's insane, and it's ironic, and it's classic, and it helps us understand that we too could be tempted to think that it's really about you or it's about me, it's about one of us compared to another, and we could lose sight of The calling of every single disciple, which is to exalt the great one, Jesus Christ. We're never called to exalt a mere mortal. And even when God exalts you as a mere mortal, the immediate response is always to point people to the immortal one to the great, true, living, and true God, to Jesus Christ. Well, it's in the midst of this Last Supper that this interaction takes place between Peter and Jesus. Look with me at Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That's it, four verses is all we're going to look at. By the time we're done looking at them, you'll have an understanding of what God wants to accomplish in your life, how God works in your life, and also how the devil works in your life too. Look with me at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, this is interesting. This is out of character for Jesus in light of Luke's gospel, where Jesus is now calling Peter by the name that he had before Jesus called him. He's saying, Simon, Simon. You can hear the endearing nature behind Jesus' voice. You can hear the passion behind Jesus' voice and perhaps the heaviness and the agony. Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Uh, Some have speculated, and I think there's a good reason to speculate in this regard, that maybe the reason why Jesus calls him Simon, Simon in this particular part, instead of calling him Peter, as he later does in this very passage that we looked at, is because of what's at stake in Peter's life. There's a lot at stake now in Peter's life. Keep in mind that this is on the heels of one of the 12 already being lost, the backstabber, Judas. Satan has already entered his heart and he decides to betray the Son of Man. Jesus has revealed that to them and they begin to discuss and debate among them which one it could be. So that has happened in this context already. They've lost one of the wheels on the bus. And then one of the other wheels, the other wheels seem to start coming off the bus because they get into this ridiculous debate that no disciple should ever be involved in which one of us is the greatest. Here's the great one in their midst, pouring out his heart, telling them that he's going to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of their sins, the great one. And they're having a debate between one another about which one of them is going to be great. So it's in this context that Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded. Satan stomping his foot. That's the imagery here that you would get if you understood the original word that's used here. It's only used here in all of the New Testament. You can imagine a child who knows that there's candy to be had and being refused the opportunity to get the candy, stomping his foot, stomping her foot, throwing a tantrum, demanding to have some of that candy. This is the imagery that's portrayed here of the adversary, the accuser of brothers and sisters in Christ, the devil, Satan. That's what the word means, it means adversary. He's going out of his way being quite emotional, being quite impassioned. He is demanding something of God. And what he's demanding is that every single one of the apostles is sifted like wheat. The word that's used there is a plural. In verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you, that he might sift all of you like wheat. Wheat. And then when we get to verse 32, the singular is used. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's interesting here. Peter then says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus demonstrating a very clear ability to know the future. It's called omniscience says these words. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Imagine that being told ahead of time. Listen, be so overconfident in your capability. I'm telling you that this is your future. This is part of your future in me. It's not pleasant. It's not thrilling, it's not delightful, but nonetheless, it is the future. And we have Jesus demonstrating very clearly here in this whole passage the ability to see the future, demonstrating an attribute of God, omniscience. He's also demonstrating the ability to see things behind the scenes in the course of our daily struggles. The things that we endure on a personal level or the things we endure in our families, within our families, or the things that are happening in the spiritual realm in a church. And yet Jesus is demonstrating that he can see what mere mortals cannot see. Do not ever think for a moment that the difficulty that you're facing in your life or the difficulty you're facing in your family or the difficulty that a church is facing or the difficulty you're facing on the job is merely an employment issue or merely a relationship issue or merely a financial issue. Now, of course, we can experience financial difficulties in our lives, in our businesses, in our families when we've exercised poor stewardship. Sometimes we reap what we sow, that there's not money there to spend on whatever it is that we need to spend it on because we've spent money on what we want to spend it on. And one of the things you need to do and I need to do as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, is learn to make a distinction between our needs and our wants. But Jesus helps us understand, he's helping Peter understand, Peter, there's something behind the scenes that you cannot see, that I know about, that you need to know about. Because this is part of your future. It's going to be part of your testimony. It's going to be part of your story. And one of the things that we understand here is the role of the adversary, to be adversarial, to come against, to oppose the person of God, and the plan of God, and the people of God. That's what the adversary does. That's what Satan does. That's the way he operates. That's what he does. And so if you're somebody who's concerned about God, if you're somebody who's concerned about the plan of God, if you're one of the people of God, then you automatically by default, I automatically by default come into the crosshairs of the adversary. You become somebody worthy of being opposed. Look with me at Job chapter one. This is not the first time That we see the devil appear by any stretch of the imagination. He's throughout the Bible, but in the book of Job, in chapter one and chapter two, we see some things behind the scenes that help us understand a thing or two about why good people suffer. Why do the righteous suffer? Now, when I mean good, I mean good as one mortal compared to another. We know compared to God, nobody's good. We know that compared to God, nobody is righteous. The book of Romans says there's none righteous. Nobody does good. But here in the book of Job, we see very clearly that Job is said to be a righteous man. When we get to the account of the flood, and the Bible talks about in Genesis about Noah, it says he's a righteous man. It does not mean without sin. That's not what righteous means. It means that somebody can be so about the person of God and the plan of God. They can be one of God's people to such a degree that everything in their life revolves around the person and the plan of God. That's what it means to be righteous, biblically speaking. Whenever we see somebody in the Bible who's said to be righteous, it doesn't mean that they are without sin. It means that they are all about their God and making sure that everything in their life is revolving around God. And Job was such a person. If you read... The account in the book of Job, you see that Job was so righteous that he even, look at verse five, it says, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, his family. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he's a righteous man concerned about the even the potential of one of his family members sinning. That's the kind of I'm-all-about-God's-business man that Job was. And so is it a coincidence that we see the adversary coming to oppose the person of God and the plan of God and the people of God Through God's servant, Job. Look with me at Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, we see this kind of a scenario repeated again. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. If you are concerned about exalting God, the God of the Bible, the living and true God, you become an object of attack. If you're concerned about the agenda of God, you become an object of attack. If you want to be one of God's people who's advancing the agenda of God and seeking to exalt the glory of God, you become somebody the adversary will come against. And this is what we see happening in Luke 22. With Simon. You see, what seems to be at stake here is the very apostleship of Peter. Whenever we see the adversary, whenever we see Satan appearing in the Bible, he's always trying to incite faithlessness. That's what he does. He tries to incite faithlessness. He tries to get you and me from exalting the living and true God. He tries to keep you and me from participating in the plan of God. He tries to keep you and me from acting like one of God's people who are sold out for the glory of God and the plan of God, who are doing the kinds of things that people do when they're interested in the glory of God and the plan of God. And it seems like what Jesus is doing here by saying, Simon, Simon, listen, behold, what's at stake here is your ability Vocationally, to be an apostle. It happened to Judas. It just might happen to you. Satan has asked not only to sift you, Simon, but every single one of you. And if that was the enemy's objective for all of the apostles, you better believe it's his objective for every single one of us. Look what Jesus says. He reveals what's at stake here in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's amazing the foresight that Jesus demonstrates here. And Jesus does not revoke his calling upon Peter. In fact, remember, it's Peter on the day of Pentecost who preaches one sermon unexpectedly, preaches one sermon, didn't know that it was going to happen there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, preaches one sermon, and in one fell swoop, more people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and God than in the entire three-year ministry of Jesus. 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one from the Old Testament. And it all happened through this one, Peter, who had a bump along his journey of faith. He's being told ahead of time, listen, listen, Before the rooster crows, you are going to deny that you know me. You're going to deny that you know me three times. And the reason why Peter could stand and continue, pick himself up, Dust himself off is the same reason that you can pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. See, there's there's things in every one of our pasts. There's something in your past. There are a lot of things in my past. A lot of things in your past. That's what it means to come to know Jesus as your Savior. Jesus as your God. Jesus as your Redeemer. By nature, by definition, there's stuff. There's junk in the trunk. There's stuff in our past. But you know, some of the things, one of the things we don't often realize, one of the things we don't often realize is that there's stuff in our future as well. There's stuff in the horizon that God Almighty knows about, that you don't know about, that I don't know about, that we can't even imagine. But God Himself knows about it. He knew about it in Peter's life. And God didn't blink. God didn't flinch. Jesus didn't freak out. Jesus didn't tweak out. He knew ahead of time. What's at stake is you might lose your faith. You might not finish what I started. I know that there's a speed bump in your future, Peter. I know that there's a fly in the ointment. You're going to have a faith crisis. But when God says but, we should all pay attention. But it's not up to you, Peter. Peter. Mere mortal. It's not up to you, mere saint. It's not up to me. God, in his grace, in his mercy, knows there's stuff in your future. There might even be something in your present. We've already talked about the past. But the truth is, if Peter's future was not a hindrance to the calling of God and God using Peter mightily, to be recorded in the passage of Scripture so that it even says that in those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Are you kidding me? How dense can somebody be to be told ahead of time, you're going to deny that you know me not once, not twice, but three times, I'm telling you ahead of time in Jesus should have had Peter's attention fully. He should have been fully enraptured at this point, fully paying attention to Jesus because Jesus demonstrated a 100% track record and when he predicted the future, it always came to be. And he's being told ahead of time, three times, a number of completeness. In my deepest, darkest hour of need, you are going to deny me. And in fact, if you read the gospel account, you read that when Peter denied the Lord, Jesus was actually within earshot because he looked straight at Peter when Peter denied him. And Peter, cut to the heart, goes out and wept Bitterly, What might have been going through Peter's mind, Peter's heart? How could I be so foolish, so dense? Jesus told me ahead of time I was going to deny that I knew him. Three times he told me I was going to do that, and I actually did it. And yet, it's that same Jesus because of who he is and because of what he did in Peter's life, because what he does in your life and mine. It's that same Peter who ends up becoming a spiritual dynamo for God. There's no such thing as a person who's a spiritual dynamo for God who does it in their own human strength. Not one of us. Never was, isn't now, never will be. None of us will ever be a spiritual dynamo for God in our human strength. It takes the intervention of somebody other than ourselves to get us to say things we otherwise would not say, to cause us to do things we otherwise would not do, to become people we otherwise would not become. And that strength is not simply a higher power. That strength is found in a person, in the works of Jesus who is still alive to this very day and living inside of every single Christ follower. He is our advocate against the adversary. Look with me at first Peter chapter five. Look with me at first Peter chapter five in verse eight. Look at these amazing words of scripture. Be sober minded. In other words, don't act out of your mind as if you're drinking. Have a few drinks and you start to act and think differently than you otherwise would. And what Peter is reminding us, keep in mind that this is Peter writing this. It'll become incredibly significant. The author of this verse of scripture, of these verses of scripture, it's Peter for good reason. Look what he says. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. One of the mistakes that you could make and that I could make the longer we know Jesus Christ is we could lose sight of the effectiveness of the adversary. We have a real, very powerful adversary. And his objective in your life and in mine is to instill faithlessness, is to get us to question the person of God, to get us to question the plan of God, to get us to question whether or not we are one of the people of God. He is set to be adversarial against everything that God wants to accomplish in and through your life and despite your life. And mine. So Peter, who knew a thing about being opposed by the adversary, says be sober minded. Be watchful, your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, who's writing this? Peter. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all undeserved favor, the recovering denier is writing this, Peter after you suffered a little while the God of all grace whom has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you you think it's a coincidence that the apostle Peter is writing these words he knew a thing or two about being opposed by the adversary he knew a thing or two about falling He knew a thing or two about stumbling on his journey of faith. He knew about what it was to give in. He knew what it was like to be sifted. And he knew that there would be people alongside of him experiencing the same thing. He knew that there would be people after him who would be able to experience the same thing. Peter knew what it was like to be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established, and that's why he says the same thing will happen for you and for me and for anybody who becomes a fly in the ointment. We're all flies in the ointment. But in God's sight, pretty beautiful flies, I might add. That the Almighty Son of God would see something valuable in you. And something valuable... Beautiful in me? That's something you can get your head wrapped around, right? I can believe it for myself, but not for you, Pastor Mike. That God would pay the priceless gift of his son in exchange for your life, in exchange for mine. Peter knew a thing or two about what it meant to deny God, to have a faith crisis, even being told ahead of time. And Peter knew a thing or two about what it was like to be used mightily by God in spite of that. And that is really the story of every single disciple. It's your story and it's mine. You come to know Christ today. It's going to be your story too. God will use you despite despite the times when you will be a fly in God's ointment. God will use you despite the moments when you will not have the human strength to go on. God will use you despite your faith crisis after faith crisis. God did not save you and have this understanding that the moment I save you, you will never stumble again. No, God saved you because apart from his grace, apart from his mercy... We would continue to sin but have no forgiveness. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves me. That's how much God would care about you and me, knowing everything that's in your future, everything that's in my future. And when we have the attitude, well, it doesn't matter what I do then. I'll just do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me anyway. You've just cheapened the incredible, priceless gift of the blood of Jesus Christ. Nobody, when they understand really the value of the price that was paid for the purchase of your life, will go on intentionally Consciously sinning. That's why Peter says, be sober-minded. Don't act like a drunkard. Don't take the gift of God as a license to do whatever it is that you want to do at his expense. We've got a very real adversary. Peter knew it. Jesus knew it. Job knew it. And now you know it. And if you're not careful and if I'm not careful, we can go about our lives thinking that there is no satanic opposition against God. There is no satanic opposition against the plan of God. There is no satanic opposition against the people of God, but the Bible presents it with absolute clarity. You make up your mind to follow God and to exalt him, you will be opposed by the adversary. You make up your mind to be one of God's people who acts in a way and has all of your life revolving around the glory of God and the plan of God, and you will, by definition, be opposed by the adversary. It happened to Peter, it will happen to you, it happens to everybody who is about the will, the plan, and the purpose, the glory of God. And it's enough to make us quake and shake in our boots. Your adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Well, who can resist him? Who can come against him? In the flesh, you and I can't. And that's why passages like these next three that we're going to look at are so important to remember because in the midst of remembering your adversary, you and I must remember Our advocate. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. At 1 John chapter 2, a great passage of scripture to commit to memory. Verse 1, my little children, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. What is an advocate? One who makes an appeal on behalf of another. Jesus is constantly making a favorable appeal to the Father on your behalf. Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. So when we sit, and it's going to happen... The good news is that we can confess our sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John makes that very clear. We have an advocate pleading our case, pleading your case, my case, any Christ follower's case before the Father. And Paul adds to that story in First Timothy chapter 2. Look with me at First Timothy chapter 2. Another great passage of Scripture, great verse to commit to memory in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, the only one spoken of in the Scriptures who's not on earth, who is a mediator between God the Father and mere mortals, and that is Jesus. He's called the mediator. So Paul talks about it, John talks about it, and then the writer of Hebrews does it in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. Look with me at Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace, undeserved favor, to help in time of need. Look at that. The great high priest who's able to sympathize with every weakness. This is the idea presented in the scriptures of an advocate, a mediator, a go-between. And that's what Jesus was for Peter. And that's who Jesus is and what Jesus is for you and for me as a believer. So when we get to Luke 22, verse 32, And we read these words that Jesus said. They're driven home. When Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You need to understand, we need to remember that in the midst of having a terrible adversary, a very effective adversary who's been around a lot longer than you and I have been around, we have an advocate who's pleading before God the Father on our behalf that God would be glorified through your life, that God would be glorified through your family, that God would be glorified through the church, that all around the world God would be glorified. And the moment you give your life to Christ, you get the advocate pleading your case, more importantly, pleading God the Father's case on your behalf before the Father. It's amazing. Look what Peter does here in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You've done this and so have I. When God speaks, we have a tremendous propensity, don't we, to not hear him the first time he said something. Simon, Simon, Simon. Probably got Peter's attention. Why are you calling me? Simon, you gave me a new name. Simon, Simon, I might end up calling you this if if you blow it. All these past three years might be for naught if you blow it. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift every single one of you like wheat. Wheat to pull no punches, to take no prisoners, to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at you. This same Peter who would have seen Jesus cast out demons sent by that same adversary. Really, Jesus? He wants to undo me? That one, the nefarious one, wants to undo me? Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And you've made this mistake and I've made this mistake. We don't hear Jesus the first time he speaks. And when we don't hear Jesus the first time he speaks, and Peter didn't hear Jesus the first time he spoke here. When Jesus said, this is what's on your horizon, what do we do? We underestimate the power and the ability Of the adversary. And when we underestimate the power, the ability of the adversary, when we underestimate our adversary, we tend to overestimate our own strength. And when we overestimate our own strength, that's when we can begin to think that we can fight the adversary in our own power, in our own strength. No, you can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody can defeat that roaring lion, the one who's likened to being a roaring lion seeking for somebody to eat alive. The only way that we can stand victorious is if we were to have somebody standing in our place who is victorious. And that's exactly and precisely who we have in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's who we have. We have the advocate Jesus. See, the truth of the matter is, is that we have a tenacious and insatiable adversary in the devil. He roams around looking for somebody to devour. But the truth of the matter is, that's only part of the story. We also have a tenacious, loving, omniscient, omnipotent God who sees everything in our past, everything in our past, everything in our present, everything in the future, and also has a 100% successful track record in overcoming the adversary. His name is Jesus. He knows what's in your past and mine. He knows what's in the present, in your life and mine. He knows what's on the horizon. He knew it in Peter's life. He knows it in your life and mine. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. And he knows that the will, the plan, the purpose, and the glory of God will go on even if you, even if I stumble along the way. If we were left to ourselves, we would be hopeless and helpless. But the goodness of God is that he sees our need, he saw our need, he knows the need, and he's the one who's the author and the perfecter of our faith, that when he begins something in your life, and he has, he finishes what he starts. In the book of Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 33, I'll leave you with these verses of scripture. I'll leave you with this passage of scripture to meditate on, to chew on, and to change You're thinking that would otherwise be faith challenged to conform to the truth of God's word. And here it is. Romans chapter eight, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? There's the idea of the mediator, of the advocate again. Jesus Christ right now is interceding for you as a Christ follower. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, it's fine to applaud the glory and the goodness of God. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is our advocate. Yes, we have a tenacious foe and adversary, but compared to our advocate, compared to the love of God, compared to the one who died and was raised again from the dead, Jesus Christ, he's the one that's tenacious. He's the one that pursued you and me. He's the one that knows our past, our present, and our future, and it doesn't make him flinch a bit. He will glorify the name of his Father. He will advance the kingdom agenda of God, and yes, indeed, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ you're one of his people and no weapon formed against you will prosper that's the God that we serve and you might be an Awana leader and wondering is my work worth anything is what I'm doing, does it matter for the glory of God? Of course you're in the crosshairs. You might be a Sunday school teacher and you might say, what I'm doing doesn't really matter. Of course it matters. The adversary wants you to have a faith crisis and wants you to wonder and doubt and question the goodness of God. Question the glory of God. Question your usefulness to God. If you're a deacon, if you're an elder, if you're a pastor, of course you're going to be in the crosshairs because if you follow God, then the agenda of the enemy, the adversary gets thwarted and the agenda of God is advanced. If you're a homeschooling mother struggling to homeschool your children. And you wonder if your efforts mean anything, if they count for anything. You have to remember Malachi chapter two that God wants not just offspring, godly offspring, godly offspring. And so your efforts to homeschool your children are worthwhile and they're valuable. And of course you're going to be in the crosshairs. And for those of us who are not homeschooling parents, you send your children to public school, your work, you have double duty in some instances. Doesn't mean that all of the public school is bad. There are godly good teachers in the public school system and you will be in the crosshairs too. You send your child to public school. You have to, when they come back into your house, you have to have discussions with them. You need to have discussions with them to find out if they are under attack, if their faith is under attack, if the adversary has been with them in the classroom. And of course, the enemy wants to get you discouraged. He wants to make you think that it's pointless. You can't afford to have your... Child, home and homeschool your child. Guess what? God knows that the same way he knew what Peter was going to do on the horizon and it doesn't make God flinch at all. God knows your circumstance. God has the answer, and the answer is found in the advocate against your adversary, Jesus Christ. You teach your children. You disciple your children, whether in the public school or whether they're homeschooled. It doesn't matter. Whatever the case might be, whatever situation you're in, no matter how dire it might seem, no matter what your past is, you don't even know what the future is, but God does. He's given you. He's given me an advocate, and I'm not doing it justice. I'm not doing him justice. I'm not preaching it hard enough. I'm not making the case as strongly as I could, but you know what? Jesus Christ right now is appealing before the Father, doing the adequate job and making the case before God the Father for you. He's pulling for you that God would be glorified in your life, that God would be glorified in your family, that God would be glorified in this church for such a time as this. Jesus is your advocate. He cares about you. He's interceding for you. He's pleading for you. And he's pushing back the adversary every single step of the way.
0: been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.